Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Susan Walter's new romantic comedy, All I Wish. The film tells the story of Senna, a clothing designer whose life seems to be spiraling out of control until she unexpectedly meets Adam, her perfect match, at her 46th birthday party. Expecting never to meet again, the two serendipitously reunite at her 47th birthday party, and Senna's life begins to flourish. All I Wish is Miss Walter's directorial debut, her credits as an assistant director include feature films such as Gary Marshall's Dear God, Harry Weiner's House Arrest, and series such as Caroline in the City. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Walter spoke with director Maria Burton about filming All I Wish. During their conversation, she discusses her beginnings in the DGA's assistant director's training program, how Sharon Stone's involvement switched from supporting role to the lead, and the importance of having a great AD team when working with a tight budget. So thank you, Susan, for this movie. I really enjoyed it. I was saying I, I actually uh, got to see it on the airplane. It was just so fun. And then to see it on the big screen, it's, it's such a treat. Um, so I have a bunch of questions, and then we're uh, allowed to uh, have a little bit of Q&A if you have questions. Um, so my first question is just how your path to make this happen. I know you started as an AD and then you were a writer and... Yes, I took the longest path possible to make my first movie. Um, I was a DGA trainee. I got in the program in 1991 um, and graduated the program in 1993 and worked as a second AD for about eight years. And... Um, I have to say, like being up here as a DGA trainee when you have like no money and you're eating ramen noodles every day, like this is where I saw every movie. And um, it's just such a thrill to be back here and up here. Um, but yes, I worked as, a, as an AD, a second AD. I, I first did a couple of smaller things, but mostly it was a second AD. And then um, I wound up working in development for a little bit, reading scripts, and that made me want to write scripts. But ultimately, I, I miss the set, and I wanted to be back on the set, but uh, my AD days were, were over. I couldn't remember how to do that job anymore, and I really wanted to be a storyteller. So that's how I finally found my way back. And was this the first script that you wrote for yourself as a director, or was it one of several scripts you had and just came together? You know, as a writer, I just kept writing them. I had written this one on spec, and it was actually set up at a studio on a much bigger budget with other directors, directors for hire. Um, I joke, we had sort of the revolving door of directors for eight years. They came in, they gave me notes, and then they left. And ultimately, the script became a little bit of a mess um, with all the different directors who each had a vision, mm -hmm. but they didn't all work in concert with one another. And so after the fourth director, director came and went, um, I kind of said, wait, wh why did I write this in the first place? And I kind of took it back 
And after I took it back with my own directorial vision, after everything I had learned from those other directors, I mean, each one left their mark in, a, in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I think I can do this now. So the budget went from 18 million to just over 1 million. And so what you saw um, was just over a million. We shot it in town on an IA tier zero. Um, which is with the uh, diversity and casting SAG incentive, just over a million dollars. And talk about this fantastic cast. How did you put them together? Well, it all started with Sharon. I had the movie set up um, to be made at about $3 million with an actress in her who just turned 30. And I offered the role to Sharon Stone to play the Ellen Burstyn role, to play the mother. And... Um, we went, we were negotiating her deal, and we actually went into pre-production with this other actress as the lead, and I was trying to cast the other roles. And um, then that lead actress got pulled back into a TV series, and I lost her during prep. And my heart was was broken, and I, you know, because when you're when you're prepping and you're ramping up and you think you're doing it, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, sorry, we were just kidding. Um, it's, it was really heartbreaking, and I was like, all right, well, I guess this isn't the movie. And then literally six months later, my phone rang. I was home alone on a Sunday, and it was Sharon Stone. She had gotten my number. Her manager called my agent on a Sunday to get my phone number, and um, she said, you know, I can't stop thinking about this script. I know you offered me the mom, but why can't I play the lead? And I thought about it, and there was something really fresh and interesting about a woman coming of age who wasn't 25, right? A woman who's finding what she wants to be when she grows up, when she's 50. And she said something really compelling to me. She said, Susan, if you had written this about a man and, and Bill Murray or Adam Sandler called you and said, I want to play a man who's trying to figure out who he is when he's 50, we would all just laugh and that's a character we recognize. We've seen that character in film. But have you ever seen a woman at 50 trying to find her way and I had to confess to her that I hadn't and I was super excited by her passion for the role so she jumped on to both star and she helped me as a producer and I needed her producerial help she picked up the phone when an agent wasn't calling me back for a supporting role she was the one who said hey it's Sharon Stone why haven't you called my director back so that's the kind of person you want um, as your producer and star and so we were able to cast around her and once she signed on it took about she signed on in May and I tweaked the script, but only a little bit. People, are, people ask me, like, did you do a major rewrite from the 30-year-old to a 50-year-old? No. I tweaked a few things. I added a few tiny references to her not being a young person anymore. But we, we, she signed on in May, and I was shooting by October 1st. And you had the money in place before she came on? Oh, or no. Oh, okay. <laughs> so when Sharon first signed on, um, we didn't have a, a penny. But she said, I can get some fancy friends of mine to come and be in it. And she had a couple in mind. And she sort of promised the money that she could deliver those two fancy friends. And those two fancy friends turned out weren't available. Um, but the, the money sort of appeared when, she, when it was her and these two other people who ultimately weren't available to do the movie. Um, but once you sort of, we sort of had that momentum, mm -hmm. we quickly were able, with her help and her picking up the phone, um, to replace them. And we got Ellen Burstyn and um, Tony Goldwyn. And Fomka came to the process kind of late, but that was just like a bonus for us. 
And she and Tony have such a nice chemistry. Had they known each other before? Or is that you as a director? Or? You know, here's a funny story. Remember I told you it was the revolving door of right. directors? So the very first person who came on to direct this film was Tony Goldwyn. We had offered it to him. I was set, The movie was set up at a company called Anonymous Content that does a lot of commercials, but they also do feature films. Steve Golan, who runs that company, has been nominated for three Academy Awards. He actually won one, um, uh, now I can't remember, Spotlight. Mm -hmm. He won one for Spotlight. Anyway, he was the producer when it was a $20 million studio film, and the person we offered it to to direct was Tony Goldwyn. And Tony Goldwyn was the first director that I sat with as a, as a, at that point, a pretty young green writer. And I remember he took me to lunch and he gave me a note. You remember the scene at the very end when they're playing the matchstick game and um, Sharon Stone's character confesses that Tony Goldwyn's character is the only man she's ever loved. Um, the original version of the scene, the one that I wrote, didn't have the new girlfriend in it. She wasn't in that scene. And Tony Golden was the one who said, this, you know, the scene has no tension unless the new girlfriend's in the scene. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a big note. And I think she's the reason that that scene works. Mm -hmm. So I held on to that. And I was able to say to him now, 10 years later, um, when Sharon helped me get him on the phone, <laughs> that, listen, I don't know if you remember this script, but you were our first choice to direct it. And when that didn't pan out, um, I still did keep some of your notes, including this very important note that I'm so grateful to you for giving that to me as a writer and not really understanding what the how to how to the the best version of that scene. And so he was, I think, flattered that I was able to recall all the things that he had brought as a director that ultimately exited the project. But um, he read it right away and signed on to do it. And they hadn't worked together. They had met Sharon and Tony, but she confessed to having a little crush on him. And I think you feel that. <laughs> yes, it's very nice. Um, so for this crowd here in, in the DGA, I want to have you talk a little bit about working with your first AD and how that was, what, what they brought to the project. Yeah, I, it was so incredible having been an AD and then bringing on ADs who were so much better at their jobs than I was. I, um, in Chad Rosen, who was our first AD, he, I mean, I didn't really realize when I was a, an AD how valuable it is to have an AD who thinks like a director. So I had a shot list and ideas of how things that I needed in coverage, and we were there, and he would say, you know, while we're here, maybe just get this size, or maybe let's do this additional shot. It's only going to take an extra 10, 15 minutes, and we're all lit for it. And every single shot that he added to my shot list is in the movie, just mm. a different size. And I'm in editing, and I'm thinking, oh, that's a nice size to use. It's not too tight. It's not too wide. I'm getting enough information, but it doesn't feel distant. Like, every single time he suggested something, like, as an AD, I didn't really ever connect with, like, that's part of your job is assisting the director, mm -hmm. is looking at that shot list and seeing what's available and looking at your watch and saying, no, we can get more. We can get a different size here. Um, he was so, so good, and I also realized, you know, if you watch the karaoke scene, the, uh, I've sat in a few different screenings, and some of the biggest laughs are from the reactions from the extras. And to have a second AD who just vigorously and enthusiastically directs these background artists to 
to act and to be in the scene and be excited about the scene. I remember sitting and editing and having so many choices and thanking my second AD like, wow, I wish I had been as a second AD, I'd wish I'd gone to editing and seen how valuable I could have been as an AD for the director from start to finish. Because you don't, as an AD, you never go to editing. Mm -hmm. And so you don't realize how important those reaction shots from the background artists are. And you don't realize that, yeah, I mean, I've covered the scene. I did the wide shot over, over. But what about that other size that mm -hmm. just adds some variety that mm -hmm. I didn't really need, but works even better than what I had imagined. Mm -hmm. So between, I mean, Chad Rosen, um, I told him he couldn't be here because he's shooting in South Carolina, but I told him I was gonna throw his name out there and then probably regret it because all the directors <laughs> here are gonna be like, oh, Chad, I should go call him because he was fantastic. He really was, especially as a first time director mm -hmm. and things that I didn't think of, he thought of them for me. The true definition of a director's team. It, indeed, for sure. And also I should mention Nicole Colombi who came on as our UPM um, as far as equipment was concerned, you know, like I had a wish list of equipment and things we couldn't afford, but she always had a plan B. And again, these are the things that I never thought about as being part of the director's team is in order to achieve that shot. No, I mean, I didn't even have a dolly, but she suggested ways to, to make those shots work and equipment that we could get and found deals for when I really needed something. Um, those are the things you don't think about, the intangible things mm -hmm. that when you realize like a great UPM who really understands that in order to cut the scene, I'm gonna need that piece and is willing to give it to you at the expense of maybe something like knowing that. Mm -hmm. I'm, so, I'm so grateful to them. Wonderful. Um, do you wanna talk about your next project? Yes, I wanna do um, another comedy. I'm not gonna shoot in LA again. It's, it was. It was pretty hard to shoot in LA um, to get the most bang for your buck just because of the tax credit situation. And um, I know that's been an issue for the DGA for a really long time, runaway production. I tried to get the tax credit. I, I fought really hard. It's a lottery system. And so it's really tricky. Um, I wound up not getting it. And you, you, you see the sacrifices I had to make on screen, I mean, certainly projected, you probably realize I never had a crane. All those shots that should have been done with a crane were done with this sort of poor man's study cam called a Movi, and they're bumpy. And, you know, I mean, it's like the things that hurt me when I watched it as a director, like, oh, it should have been smooth. I just didn't, I had to make choices. So um, I didn't get the tax credit, but we went ahead and we shot it in LA because I felt like this was really an LA story. The next one is actually just written for, um, it's written for Mexico. Ooh. It's a sort of destination road trip um, movie. Yeah, it's a destination road trip movie and it's not LA. So um, I know I'll have sort of a different budgeting matrix to work with mm -hmm. when I do that. And you know, I'm sad. I'm sad that the, the system in for shooting in LA is not doesn't give you more options. And they don't tell you to the last minute, like we didn't know if we had the tax I didn't credit. Realize that. You can't mm -hmm. apply too early. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you apply, you know, you're kind of committed. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, as as a DGA member and the things that I I want to sort of try to be a part of going forward, mm -hmm. that's one of the things I'm hoping as a member of both to, DGA. To fight for more tax incentive for independent films. One that works better. Mm -hmm. I mean, other places do it better. Mm -hmm. And I think um, 
we, sh we, we need to continue to work for that because I want to stay home, you know? I have two daughters. And it helps and with your cast, you know? Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, don't you guys want to stay home? I've got to get on a plane and I'm going to go shoot a movie in Arizona. I mean, I could shoot at L.A. and Mexico. The, the destination is Mexico. But, there, you know, it's more cost-effective and I can get for, more for my money if I do it in New Mexico, which is a really good rebate state. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's going to be, that's going to be the choice. And I'm going to be away from my family for probably four months. That's a long time. Right. We should right. do it here. And the great, I mean, I had a great crew. There's great crews here. And I'm sad I won't be able to work with a lot of those people again. Uh, do you want to talk about how you sold it after it was done? Yeah, I mean, we did this movie with um, private equity. So it was calling all my rich friends from Harvard saying, hey, did you make a lot of money? Do you, do you need a year-end um, tax dodgy thing? Because I got a place you can put it, and it'll be fun, and you can come to this set. So I got some money that way. I had a, another producer who had other connections and brought in money that way. But we raised it basically $100,000 at a time till we got to just over a million. And um, we shot the movie, and then there's that scary period where you've spent all the money and you have no idea if you're going to see a nickel of it back. So we did um, a director's finder screening here at the DGA. I got a ton of support as a DGA member to do the film, to show the film here, and we invited buyers. Um, and we did a second screening also that we paid for. So between those two screenings, you know, it only takes one buyer. I don't think a lot showed up but we did get the one, and that was Universal, who bought the film, showed it um, in 10 cities theatrically, and it's available now on VOD um, on demand. And so they released it in that, now they call it day and date platform. Mm -hmm. So they, the, the theatrical run is really just a marketing ploy to get right. more eyeballs to VOD, because people and, will. And I think you get more reviewers when you have the theatrical, you get better press. That makes sense, sure. And why'd they change the name? I think because when you're scrolling, the original title of this film was A Little Something for Your Birthday, which it's that's the title that the airlines um, are showing it because we sold it to the airlines first. It took oh. five months for the deal at Universal to close, but mm -hmm. in the meantime, um, the airlines had bought it based on a couple of cut scenes. They bought it back in November at AFM. Mm -hmm. So I shot the movie in October. AFM was in November. We had two cut scenes and a sort of piecemeal trailer, and it sold to the airlines. And the airlines, um, in their deal, said, we, get to, we don't have to wait more than a year. Mm. And so the airlines released it before the Universal deal closed under the title, Little Something for Your Birthday. And then Universal thought A Little Something for Your Birthday was way too long on a thumbnail when you're scrolling on iTunes. Uh, um, so they asked if they could change the name. And they were very collaborative about it. Mm -hmm. um, we, were, we, you know, we shared our ideas and came up with a new title But together. they both begin with A, so you see them first. The A was very <laughs> important. The A was very important. Right. Well, anyone have questions in the audience? I see two hands over here. Oh, thank you. Um, the costume designer and the production designer was the question, who were they and how did I find them? Um, the costume designer was Mona May, who I picked from her credits. She did the movie Clueless, and this was a movie about clothes, and the thing you remember, or at least what I remembered about Clueless, besides the fantastic dialogue, was the clothes. 
And um, my friend Brian Horiuchi uh, used her for a, a movie of similar scope, so I had uh, suspected she would be open to doing a smaller movie. I gotta tell you, she had a work cut out for her. I think Sharon Stone alone had 26 costume changes, and she had $30,000 to dress not just Sharon, but the entire cast, you know, basically a period film that took place over eight years. Right. And um, she did it. <laughs> so I found her, you know, that was like, if you can, if I could have anybody, who would I want? I wanted her and another director friend that I had knew her. So I said, do you think she'd be open? He said, well, I didn't pay her very much on mine, so I think she's material driven. So that's how I picked Mona. And the costume designer, I mean, uh, the production designer came from my my producer who had worked with him um, on another film. Mm -hmm. And he just was a can-do guy. Like, I'm like, I, I, you're gonna have to walk into a set and sort of shoot it, whatever's there, and only augment a teeny bit, because there's no budget. And he was just a can-do guy. And we wound up, one of my producers um, works in, came out of theater, and she was still had an affiliation with a theater company, and we literally borrowed a lot of furniture and accessories from her theater company because they said that we could just use them because they weren't using them. So, I mean, we really had to get creative and he was, you know, it's a lot. You got to run around and pick up that stuff and bring it back and is it from, it's not from a prop house. It's not from a rental house. It's not like one stop. It's literally like you get the rug there, you get the couch there. I have some paintings in my house. Come and get them. I mean, it was really a lot to ask of him. So, he did it. He won't do it again, probably, but he did it once. <laughs> Thanks, Mary Lou. And you? Yes, I was. Who is that? Oh, <laughs> I got fired off that show. <laughs> I did. They said I was too nice to the actors. Because, okay, so the, um, the you know, this was a space show, and they had to wear these, these, these jumpsuits. And the women had to wear these jumpsuits with knee pads and and hockey masks and things. And to go to the bathroom took 15 minutes. And so they would tell me, get them dressed. And I'm like, well, is camera ready? They'd be like, don't worry about that. Just get them dressed. And you know, for the first month, I would get them dressed. And then, of course, they're like, I really have to go to the bathroom. And camera's not ready. Why am I dressed? And so I was trying to be nicer to the actors. And I, I said, you know, you don't really. They told me to get you dressed. But don't get dressed. Because I can tell they're still, they have to move a wall. It's going to be a while. And I got fired for that. So there you and go. Being nice to the actors. Now you're a director <laughs> where you're working well with the it's actors. It's all about being nice to the actors. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I said, I wish I had been a better AD. I really do. <laughs> but I wasn't. Any other questions? It was, yeah, it was always part of it. You know, one of my favorite movies was um, When Harry Met Sally. And... I wanted to sort of do an homage to that in terms of having, you know, when you're doing a film that takes place over many years and you, there's a sort of episodic thing that you fall into and how do you break that up? I, I felt like I needed something in between the years so that the audience could have a moment to breathe. Um, and so I decided it would be an interesting idea to, to get to know the characters a little bit better um, if they got to speak a little bit from a different place, the, the you know, well, getting... I love how you introduce the new girlfriend first. Like, that's how we, we are introduced to her. You know, I, one of the producers was really worked hard on me to get rid of that. He's like, no one's going to know who she is. Cause I had shot a couple extra ones. I had a couple on reserve in case they didn't work. 
And um, he really wanted me to get rid of that. So I'm really glad you said that because I fought yeah. hard to keep that in the movie. I was like, at that point, I got to challenge the audience a little bit and they'll figure it out, right? You figured it out? Oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> so yeah, I did that and um, I, want, I shot it against black because I wanted it to feel a little bit like a confessional mm. um, that you're getting kind of a, a secret. You're getting to know them a little bit better. By, and, and I'll tell you, in casting Fomka, she told me, that she wouldn't have taken the role if it didn't have her give her the opportunity to show that she was a full human being. That she, you know, that she came off the lines that I had scripted for her in the course of the narrative. Sometimes she came off kind of harsh and kind of brittle. And this thing that she does, you know, she fires our protagonist on her birthday. And she said, Thank you for redeeming her with this monologue in which you see that the brittleness comes from a place of pain. Mm -hmm. And so, for her, that was, I mean, that's the reason I was able to cast her is because she really appreciated the opportunity to be a, a fully rounded out character. I've gotten some heat from that, too. I mean, some people don't like it. Some critics don't like it. You're never going to please everybody. everyone. <laughs> exactly. Any other questions? Do you have anything else you want to talk about? No, I mean, I'm just so grateful for people for coming out on a Monday night and seeing a smaller film. Independent film is really hard. I think it's it's the most gratifying thing you can do if you can find a way to do it. Um, I'm hoping the next one, I won't have to ask my production designer to run all over town picking up things here and there. I'll have a little bit more of a budget. But um, yeah, I'm really grateful to the support I got from the DGA for the Director's Finder screening and for being there for me from the from the contractual part in that you know I didn't know how much I was going to be able I mean I kind of was like I'm going to get paid like kind of whatever's left is that okay and they were like just go make your film and I got a lot of support every step of the way from you know the pre-pre-production and making my deal um, into being able to afford really a top-notch AD if you look him up you'll see his credits I mean he didn't have to do this film he could have done anything and I was able to afford him on, on because of the flexible contract. And he is a kind of guy who's like, I want to do a movie that speaks to me and this spoke to me. Um, and then in selling the film, that they have this director's finder screening. And it was a way we had had uni Universal, who wound up buying the film, had seen the film at our screening. Mm -hmm. But I think it put the pressure on them knowing that I was doing another one. And we were able to close the deal in large part because they knew I was coming here. And... Um, the DGA was supporting me in that. So I'm just so grateful for being here. Well, it's very inspiring. I love hearing about how you persisted and it took all those years and here you are. Thank you. Here we had this beautiful screening. So thank you all for coming Thanks, out. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.